Good morning and welcome to the house of the Lord. Thanks to the worship team who always does such a great job of setting up the preaching of the word. And we should not ever take these people for granted for what they do for us. Uh, We are in a series of sermons going through the book of Romans. And this morning we are as far as Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 11. And if you want to open your Bibles or your iPhones to that passage, I'll read it shortly. Uh, when I was, the schedule was sent out a, a few weeks ago, and um, I was asked to preach on this Sunday, but this week was an exceedingly busy week, and, um, but I decided to accept the commitment to preach from this on this Sunday because I love this passage of Scripture, and as Hal mentioned, there's a lot here in his prayer. And uh, I prayed all week that the Lord would not let me get the flu this week because it was just too much going on, and, uh, but, but decided to do it this week with this particular passage. Now, before we get into the passage, you guys need a little humorous story to wake you up this morning? You do? Okay. All right, how about this one? Um, there was a young girl who, was, uh, who went to her mom, and she said, Mom, my stomach hurts. And the mom said, well, it's because it's empty. You need to put something in it. So she ate some food and she felt better. And that afternoon, the pastor came by the house and he turned to this little girl's father and said, my head hurts. And the little girl turned to the pastor and said, it's because it's empty and you need to put something in it. (laughs) Now, this morning, if your head is hurting or your heart is hurting through this passage of scripture, God is about to put something in it. So... Consecrate yourself with me uh, to this passage of Scripture for the next 30 minutes, and let's see what we can find. Romans chapter 5, let's read through verses 1 through 11 together. I'm reading from the New American Standard. You've got an English Standard Version in the pews, but it's roughly similar. Romans chapter 5, verses 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than... Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the eternal God will stand forever. Let us pray. Lord, may your spirit be as a lamp in our hearts, and may there be light bulb moments 
in which the light goes on several times in our hearts and minds over these next few minutes as we consider this treasure of spiritual jewels that we find in this remarkable passage in the Bible. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen. The first half of the last century was characterized by not just one, but two world wars, which sandwiched a deep depression in between them. And the generation, my parents and some of your parents, uh, lived through that awful period in history. And that's why Tom Brokaw wrote a book called The Greatest Generation. It just so happens that this year, 2018, we celebrate the 100th anniversary or the centennial anniversary of World War I. World War I was one of the deadliest conflicts in the history of the human race. Over 16 million people died. The war killed 7 million civilians and 10 million military personnel. World War II was much worse. It was marked by between 50 and 70 million fatalities, most of which were civilians in the Soviet Union and China including massacres, genocide of the Holocaust, strategic bombing, starvation, disease, and the first first use of nuclear weapons. Millions of people were killed. So when the wars came to an end, you can only imagine the jubilation and excitement that the horrible bloodshed was over. For World War I... The world came to an end on Armistice Day, which is November the 11th. And at 11 o'clock in the morning, on the 11th of November, the 11th month of the year, World War I came to an end. Victory in Europe Day occurred on May the 8th, 1945, and then victory over Japan occurred on August 15th, 1945. Today we have Memorial Day, which celebrates... All those who died in military service, that's the last uh, Monday in May. And then we have Veterans Day, which falls on November the 11th, which celebrates all those who served in the military. Now, what I want you to do is to look up here and look at some of these slides. And these slides show the mood of jubilation and excitement when the war was finally over. And these slides are from different parts around the world, Paris, London, Times Square, and what you can see through these slides is the enormous sense of relief that the people of the world experienced. And if you'll advance the slides, there's one, that's the most famous one (laughs) that occurred in Times Square. Perhaps you've seen that one and you remember that one. Now, the jubilation you see on these slides and the excitement of these slides at the end of the war. That is exactly the mood of Romans 5, 1 through 11. In other words, the best way to understand Romans 5, 1 through 11 is simply this. The war is over. Let the celebration begin. 
Best way to understand it. Now, how, how does this normally occur during a time of war? Well, when a war comes to an end, the war is over. There's a ceasefire. And then there's an armistice or a truce. People stop shooting at each other. Then there's the negotiation of the terms of surrender. The peace treaty is signed. The declaration of peace is proclaimed. And the celebration begins. Now, as we've made our way through Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4, here's what we find. Is that in Romans 1, it lays out that war broke out between the Creator and the creation. War broke out between God and the people He had created in His image. In chapter 1, it says that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who were living in open rebellion against Him. So in Romans 1, it tells us that war has broken out, and there is war between God and the people He's created. That war took different expressions. For the Gentiles, they lived in open rebellion and defiance of God, and the second half of Romans 1 lays out the numerous ways that man lived in rebellion against God, and not only paraded their defiance before God, but gave hearty approval to everyone who joined them. Then in chapter 2, the war, with the, the war took a different expression with the Jews. The Jews were the people of God. They had been given the laws of God. And so the Jews didn't live in open unrighteousness like the Gentiles did, but rather they rebelled against God in a more subtle way. They pursued a self-righteousness as opposed to a perfect righteousness that God had created. So the Jews in their pursuit of self-righteousness and the Gentiles in their pursuit of unrighteousness ignored the perfect righteousness of God. And it says in, in Romans 3 that these both groups of people reached the same bottom, the bottom of the same pit. They just got there in different pathways. The Gentiles did it in open unrighteousness, but the Jews did it in the pursuit of a self-righteousness. And so we're told in Romans 3, there is none righteous, not one. None can do good. They're all separated from God. So God is at war with his creation, and his creation is at war with him. But then the second half of chapter 3 tells us that God sends a mediator to bring peace. And that mediator is Jesus himself. And it uses some big words in the second half of chapter 3, but what it's talking about is this, that Jesus came and offered himself not just to mediate the peace, but he offered himself as a sacrifice that would do two critical things. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice that would cover the sins of man, Jew and Gentile. And not only would it cover the sins of man so that man, God would not see those sins anymore, but his sacrifice satisfied the wrath of God that was in response to man's sins. So Jesus became the mediator that satisfied the need of man and the demands of God, and he brought in between those two parties a reconciliation. And in place of the unrighteousness of the Gentiles and the, the self-righteousness of the Jews, Jesus introduced a new kind of righteousness called faith righteousness. And that faith righteousness is the straight and narrow between these two extremes of unrighteousness and self-righteousness. So Jesus offered that perfect righteousness, and now anyone who will embrace that righteousness by faith can now have peace with God. Then chapter 4 goes back to the life of Abraham and basically explains that 
It's not like we've never heard of this faith righteousness before, but it's laid out very clearly in the life of Abraham, the father of the Jews. Uh, The name Abraham means father of a multitude, and Abraham in Romans 4 is denominated the father of the faithful who believed, and as he believed, his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. So in other words, Abraham understood faith righteousness centuries before Jesus ever came. But it had lapsed into obscurity, and when Jesus came, it brought the, the idea of faith righteousness to light. And now we come to Romans 5. And in Romans 5, the passage starts off with this simple statement. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. Now, follow along with me as we go through the passage. The war with God is over to anyone who will accept the terms of peace. If you accept the terms of peace, accept the terms that Jesus offered us, then as far as you're concerned, the war with God is over. So when the war is over, let the celebration begin. And so Romans 1.11 is all about celebration. We now have peace. Peace is now available with God. Now let's go into Romans 5, 1-11, and let's understand the marvelous tone of this passage that the war with God is now over, and to those who accept the terms... Peace is available to them in jubilation or excitement as a result. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 2. Notice it says at the end of the verse, We exalt or we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. Look at verse 3. It says, We also exalt or celebrate in our tribulation. And then look at verse 11. Not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So three different times you have this word exalt. It it is a word which basically refers to joyful, triumphant celebration. The exact same celebration we saw on the slides at the end of those first two world wars that were so awful. Those of us that have accepted the terms of peace with God, that same jubilation is now available to us. That same joyful, triumphant celebration belongs to us. First of all, in verse 2, it says that we exalt in our justification. I'm not going to elaborate on that, but I'll talk to you more about it in just a minute. But no longer are we condemned before God, but we're justified before God by Jesus. So we exalt in that. Secondly, it says that we exalt not just in our justification, but even in our tribulation. Isn't it amazing that when the war's over, lots of things that would bother us just don't seem to matter really too much anymore. And verse 3 tells us not only do we result in our justification, but we result in our tribulation. In other words, what this is saying is that even in the worst of times, because I have peace with God, I'm much better off than in the best of times when I'm at war with God. Years ago, we had a speaker who came to one of the Life Imprint dinners who was um, kind of a behind-the-scenes famous man. He was a man who had managed the Beatles in the 1970s. And he ran with the rich and famous well before his time. And he lived an amazing life. And then at one point, his life totally crashed and burned. And he drug himself back to Nashville looking for a job. Saw a woman in a restaurant. And she pointed him to Jesus. 
And to make a long story short, she eventually came, he eventually came to a personal relationship with God through Jesus. And as he entered into the fullness of that peace with God and that relationship with God through Jesus, he looked back on all the fame and fortune in the entertainment world that he enjoyed, and this is what he said. My worst day as a Christian is better than my best day in the world of entertainment. Now, that's what Paul is saying in verse 3 when he says, we rejoice even in our tribulations. So we're in a fallen world. We're going to have to, we're going to encounter things while we're here. The Bible says through many tribulations we'll enter the kingdom of God. But even in our tribulations, we rejoice in that because that tribulation is going to work together for our good. So not only do we exult in the glory of God, we exult in our tribulations, and we also exult in our reconciliation. Verse 11 says, but we exult in God through Jesus, through whom we've now received reconciliation. Now, what is reconciliation? Reconciliation is the harmony that occurs when adversarial parties reach peace. That's exactly what the passage talks about. We were at war with God. Now we've been reconciled. So there's harmony in our relationship with God. So we, we celebrate triumphantly and joyfully our justification, our tribulation, and our reconciliation. So the tone of the passage is the war is over. The celebration should begin. Now, what exactly are we supposed to be celebrating? Let's look into that more specifically. Now, follow along with me as I draw some insights out of the passage that we can celebrate. In the verses 1, 2, 4, and 5, and 4 and 5, and then 5 and 8, there is a trilogy of virtues that are mentioned. The first one is faith. It says, we have been introduced by faith to the grace in which we stand. Then verses 3 and 4 talk about, we celebrate in hope. And then verse 5 talks about how the love of God has been poured into our hearts. Now notice these three things, faith, hope, and love. Have you ever heard those mentioned in the Bible before? You know where they're mentioned. In 1 Corinthians 13, it says, abide these three, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Now, what you may not have noticed before is that those three words form a trilogy that are found clustered together throughout the New Testament. And they're found here in Romans 5, 1 through 11. Then what we're celebrating and joyfully triumphant about is that, first of all, we're a people of faith. Secondly, we're a people of hope. And we're a people, thirdly, of love. Now, let's look at these just briefly. The word faith means a fixed or settled belief. Do you know how hard it is to find somebody in today's world who's fixed and settled about anything? I do lots of street evangelism. I talk to people in different places and try to drill down into their belief system and find out where they're coming from. And what you do find with people you talk to today is that most of the time, they really don't know. They have more questions than they have answers. And it's great to be able to give them answers, but it always depends on whether they want those answers or not. And a lot of times, people are confused and don't want answers. They want to stay in the midst of their confusion. But people of faith don't operate that way. People of faith are people with a fixed, settled belief and a fixed and settled God. And there may be some things we don't know about life, but there's plenty we do know. 
And that is, we know who the God is that we believe, and we know who we are in our belief in Him. So people of faith are disabused of skepticism, confusion, and uncertainty. They know what they believe, why they believe it, and what they believe in, who they believe in. But not only are we a people of faith, but secondly, we're a people of hope. Hope is the confident expectation about the future. Hope is that thing that drives people forward in the midst of a fallen world when life is just constantly difficult. Have you ever been in a place in your life where you lost your hope? If you lose it for very long and it's allowed to fester, you will hit the wall of despair. It's the worst place imaginable. Is there anything worse than depression? Yes, it's called despair, and it's awful. If you've seen a person in despair, their eyes are glazed over, they can't see their hand in front of them. But the Bible here describes the people of God as a people of hope. And when you have hope, you might slip in, dip into depression every once in a while, but for the most part, because we have a God who's fully behind us and who works all things together for good, we will always pull out of that. So we're not only a people of of fixed and settled belief, but we're a people of confident expectation regarding the future. And then lastly, it says that we're also a people of love. The word love is a word here that means full valuation. When someone feels loved, they feel valued. They feel respected. And because the love of God is poured out into our hearts, we feel fully valued. We feel fully validated by God's love, even when we don't have the love of our fellow men. Jesus, last few days on earth, he was rejected, abandoned by his own disciples, but he had a peace before God because he had the love of God in his heart. That love is like a steel anchor. And so not only are we people of faith, we're people of hope, but we're also a people of love. And our lives revolve around those things. Now that we've made our peace with God, we are defined by faith, hope, and love. You know what's amazing about this is that years ago, a pastor attended a mental health congress in Spain. 4,000 mental health therapists came from all over the world. On the closing day, first guy got up and said, the most powerful healing force that we can give people is faith. Then he sat down. Next guy got up and said, no, the most powerful healing force that we can give to people is hope. Then he sat down. Then the third guy got up and said, no, the most powerful thing that we can give transformationally to people today is love. And the pastor's sitting there listening to his mental health therapist, and what did he hear? But that the three most powerful transformational healing forces in the world are faith, hope, and love. And it's right here in the passage. So what are we to be triumphantly excited about? Because we are defined as people of faith and hope and love. Moving on through the passage. There's an interesting phrase here that repeats itself. Not only do we exult in the benefits of what God has done for us, but we, re- we exult in the dramatic rescue that God has executed for us. I want you to notice these phrases in verse 6. It says, while we were still helpless. Look at verse 8. God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. And then look at verse 8. Uh, rather, verse 10. For while we were yet enemies. And what you notice that this passage describes us as 
helpless, sinners, and even enemies. Now, the condition that this marvelous grace of God found you in was described here. While were you were weak, while you were a sinner, and while you were an enemy, the love of God found its heart, found your heart. You were captured by the grace of God while you were in a condition in which you didn't deserve any of it. In other words, when we come to the negotiating table to make peace with God, we bring nothing to the table. Nothing. We were helpless. We were sinners. We were enemies. And so the grace of God, the love of God, overcomes all of our resistance and hostility and has drawn us to himself. It is a picture of overcoming love. Therefore, we can't celebrate us or anything about us, but we can sure celebrate God and what he did for us while we were yet in such a pathetic condition. Now, it's hard for you and I to really appreciate the depths of this love, but let me tell you the story, maybe this will illustrate it. <clears throat> in World War II, going back to the war scenario, in the Pacific Theater where we were at war with the Japanese, on the battlefield one day, American troops were sent into combat, and the enemy overran them, and there were wounded men left exposed on the battlefield, and the Japanese could kill them like shooting fish in a barrel. And there was a wounded, one wounded soldier in particular that was out on the battlefield, and he was out in open view. They, he had no cover. So one of his fellow American soldiers crawled out on the battlefield and covered his friend and held on until reinforcements came to the American troops. They drove the Japanese troops back, and they were able to clear the wounded from the battlefield and, and spare their lives. And so the commanding officer said to the guy who walked out on the battlefield and covered his friend and saved his life, he said, why'd you do that? And he said, because I valued the life of my friend so much. And the commanding officer said to him, well, answer me this. Would you have done that if that had been a Japanese soldier? He had no response. In other words, no, I wouldn't have. And the point is that he went out to cover his friend, but would he be willing to cover his enemy? And what this passage tells us, while you were a sinner, while you were weak and helpless, while you were the enemy, God covered you on the battlefield. Now that's the depths of God's love in this passage. Because we have this amazing grace, the next thing we celebrate is this thing called justification. Hang on, I'm coming toward the end. Now notice how this passage starts. We celebrate the benefits of being at peace with God. We celebrate the dramatic rescue that God has brought to us. And now we celebrate what's called justification. Now, Romans 1. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith. Now, what does that 50-cent word mean? Whenever I was young and I would ask my mother what a word meant, she said, yeah, James, that's a 50-cent word. You've got to go look it up in a dictionary. So what does that word justify mean? Well, here's what it means. It means to take someone 
who is condemned and to declare them righteous. In other words, justification replaces condemnation. If you were helpless as a sinner and an enemy of God, then you were under condemnation. Now, because of what Jesus has done for you by His shed blood, you are justified. You're justified. Condemnation has been replaced by justification. Now, how does this work? Well, it involves two key things. I'll touch on them briefly, and then we'll move on. Justification means two things to you, and we can celebrate this. Number one, that all the sins that you have ever committed, you are released from all the guilt associated with those things. Now, given all the skeletons we have in the closet, we all have plenty of them. You think of all the sins you've ever committed, all the sins you're going to commit. All those sins, you are released from them. That's the root of the word forgiveness. It's the word release. But that's not all. That's the negative aspect of justification. The positive aspect of justification is this, that you've been forgiven for all your unrighteousness, but now the perfect righteousness of Christ has been deposited into your account. So when God looks at you as a person of faith, He doesn't see your unrighteousness. He sees Jesus' perfect righteousness. So that justifies you before a holy God. You're free to go. Now let me tell you a story that kind of illustrates this justification thing. Think of it like this. There once was a guy who was in England, and he bought a Rolls Royce. And he put it on a boat and shipped it over the English Channel to the European mainland and was on vacation in Europe. And the Rolls-Royce developed mechanical problems, couldn't drive the car. So he called the dealership back in England and he said, what do you suggest I do? They said, you sit tight. So they flew a mechanic over to where he was in Europe who fixed the car, put the car back in working order, flew back to England, and the man continued on his vacation. And then later, the owner of the Rolls-Royce called the dealership and said, what do I owe you? And this is the response he got. He said, the dealership said, in our files, we have no record whatsoever of any broken down or repairs going on with your car. No charge. Enjoy your vacation. Now look, the car broke down. They fixed it, but didn't keep a record of it. That's what justification means. You've sinned. God fixed it. And now there's no record of it. Proceed. Enjoy your life. Justification means condemnation is over. You're now justified in the sight of God. So we exult in the justification that is now ours. And now let me conclude by saying that justification means this. Best way to understand it is just as if I never sinned. Justification means just as if I never sinned. Remember it that way. And now the last thing we exalt in, brethren, now that the war with God is over, here's the last thing we exalt in. We exalt in the conditions that come with the war being over. There are two. The first one is peace. Look at Romans 5.1. It says, having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God. 
You now have peace in your life. What is peace? Peace is harmony that comes through reconciliation. Jesus was the mediator. He resolved the dispute by the sacrifice of his life. And now reconciliation replaces the enmity between us. So you have harmony through reconciliation. And let me ask you this morning. Have you made your peace with God? Have you activated this truce in your life? Well, that's what I do here. And if you need help figuring out how to do that, I'd love to talk to you. So the first condition we have now that the war with God is over is peace. And the second condition is grace. Grace. It says in verse 2, or rather, yeah, verse 2. We have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace. Now, what is grace? Peace is harmony through reconciliation. Grace is favorability through justification. We now have a wonderful standing with God. It is a standing of favorability. So those of you that have accepted the terms of surrender, those of you that have accepted the terms that Jesus offered, you now stand before God every moment of every day of your life in a state of grace. Even though you're unworthy, even though you're not perfect, even though you're still a work in progress, God sees none of your imperfections. You exist in a state of grace. And so we sing the song called Amazing Grace. There's tremendous power in that song, and let me conclude with this story. Bill Moyers did a documentary years ago, late 90s, on the song Amazing Grace. What is it about the song Amazing Grace that has captured the hearts and inspirations of God's people for centuries? What is it about that song, though, that's so fascinating? And in this documentary, they showed a concert that was happening in Wembley Stadium. And there was all these rock artists and groups and bands that were up on the stage. And they were gun, like, groups like Guns N' Roses and these radical groups and these huge banks of speakers. And they're blaring out rock music all day long. And what nobody could really understand is why they chose to close the concert with an opera singer. But the documentary shows that Bill Moyers is interviewing this opera singer in this dressing room while Guns N' Roses are blaring out rock music in Wembley Stadium. And so when the moment arrives at the end of the concert, this opera singer goes out on the stage and there's a single spotlight on her. No music playing. No bands blaring. Banks of speakers are completely silent. She walks out on the stage and starts to sing Amazing Grace. The reaction initially was hostile. Somebody hollered, we want guns and roses. Resistance to the song. By the second verse, Wembley Stadium is perfectly silent. By the third verse, people start to sing along with Amazing Grace. And then they get to the fourth stanza and the whole stadium singing. Remember the words? When we've been there 10,000 years. 
bright shining as the sun, the whole stadium just transitioned from rock, hard rock, evil music, hard music, riotous music, rebellious music to some degree, just shifted into this soft aria of amazing grace. And afterwards, the opera singer Jesse Norman was asked, what do you think came over Wembley Stadium that day? And she confessed that she didn't know. But here's the bottom line. When grace walks into the room, the world falls silent. Now, if you've accepted the terms of peace and the war between you and God is over, you live in a constant state of peace and in a state of grace. Isn't it interesting that all of Paul's letters begin and end with grace? The beginning of the letters say, grace and peace to you, and the end of his letters say, grace be with you. And one more insight, then I'll shut up. The root word for grace, the verb for the word grace, means to rejoice. So you're in a state of grace by virtue of what Jesus has done for you. Therefore, we exist in a state of celebration. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bow my head and pray. If anybody here is not yet connected into the grace of God, I'd love to talk to you. Either today or someday this week, you let me know. And after I finish praying, you're going to stand up and we're going to play a very celebrated piece of music and you can walk out of here with your heads held high. Let's all stand and let me pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we are moved by this profound passage of Scripture that is so liberating and gives us permission to rise into the heights of heaven, forgetting what's down here upon the earth, and to fully enter into the joy that's now available to us, that through Jesus we have peace with you, our God. I remember well the days I was at war with you, O Lord, and the hollow emptiness that characterized my pathetic life. And my, not only my, my head hurt, but my heart hurt. My heart hurt. But you've put something into it, your grace, which has brought peace through faith. And now we stand in a state of reconciliation with you, experiencing peace and grace. And the celebration has not only begun, but it will continue on into eternity. And now, Lord, as we've talked today about being absolved of the penalty of sin, we'll begin in these next few weeks in the book of Romans to talk about being brought up from under the power of sin. And then one day, later in Romans 8, we'll talk about glorification being brought out of the presence of sin. Lord, wherever we are, fill us with the fullness. Let us reach for all that you've made available to us and not just settle for crumbs from the table. Let us enjoy the feast of joy and triumphant excitement as our lives move forward. And now, Lord, for your glory and for your sake.
be honored in our hearts here in our lives and in this church today. In the name of Jesus, we pray and everybody said, Amen. Amen.